maybe me. While we were singing, my daughter was kind of playing with the side of my pocket, and I realized she's actually playing with the microphone. I hope that doesn't affect anything adversely. <laughs> oh. um, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to John chapter 5. We're back in John today, after a couple weeks, and Alan graciously dealing in the, the subject of apostasy, apostasy and we're, we're at a wonderful spot, actually. That it's amazing sovereignty of the Lord in preaching. When you preach through books of the Bible, and if you take a moment just to, to step away and cover something topically, and he brings you back, and you find this fits extremely well with where we just were in regard to, uh, to apostasy. Um, so, John chapter 5. We're going to go verses 30 through 30. Well, excuse me, 30 through 40. Cover verses 30 through 40 today. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing of my on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here Jesus closes out uh, his, um, his claims of equality with God the Father. Now he begins to, to provide the basis for it. Verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is, I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that, so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice with him for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Let's pray. Father, you, you know my own frailties. You know my weaknesses. <coughs> you of all people, <laughs> you of all beings, know that I don't come this morning on behalf of myself. I bring nothing of myself to the table this morning. Only weakness and dependency. So Father, would you once again remind us of your gentleness, remind us of your mercy, remind us of your grace, remind us of all of your attributes, your justice, your wrath, your peace, Remind us of these through the testimony of your Son again this morning. That, Father, your written word would be turned around and verbalized and you would once again testify of your Son. That the word would abide in us. I need this for myself this morning, Father. I, I ask it selfishly. hope that's okay. 
Father, I ask it for everyone who's in this room. For we need to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's do a little pop quiz. Uh-oh. Hey, we're back in school. Your kids are back in school. Come on, we can do this. Um, take out a piece of paper or, I know, you don't have a piece of paper. If you get a phone out, you know, if you've got the little note section on your phone, just, just do this with me. Let me ask you a question. If God exists, what must he be like? Write down your answer, or type it. If God exists, what must he be like? Think of it this way. A being can have this or that trait, but if that being is God, he must have this. Otherwise, he's not God. If God exists, what must he be like? Okay, got your answers? Now you can you can answer this if you want, you know, on your on your phone or piece of paper. But at least think of this. Now that you have those answers and you you see them, why must God have that trait? Or why must God have this trait? The emphasis is on the must. Why must God have this trait? You see, here's the, the important point. At the end of the day, we cannot dictate the terms of what God must be like. We're completely dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. Think of it this way. If you work in a, in a, in a business or you know, you're, you're in, a, in an organization and there's a new position, a new job position, that you and a few other people are responsible for creating. There's a need within the company and you know, your, your boss has said, we want, I want you guys to basically build this position and then pick a candidate for it. You get to dictate the terms for that position. Okay, well, this candidate, this, this position needs to have this type of character, and they need to have this type of skill set, these types of things. Okay, and then you get to choose who that person is based off what you've dictated. But God's not like that, right? That, that, that's kind of like, uh, that's kind of like, w- if an alien exists, what must it be like? Does, that, does it have to have green, a green body? Does it have to have an oval-shaped head that you know, kind of looks like an upside-down egg and big black eyes and you know, walk around? You don't really get to dictate those terms, right? I mean, it's got to be from outer space, pretty much. There's not much more than that. You know? So you don't really get to dictate those terms. And so the same is true of God. We don't get to dictate the terms of God's character. We're dependent upon God to reveal himself to us in order for us to know anything about him. Now you might say, well, okay, also I know my Bible, and doesn't Romans say that all is without excuse because God's revealed himself in creation? And I'd say that's absolutely true. That's how if you've written anything down about God that is intrinsically true of God, even if you know nothing about God from Scripture, you will pull that from God's general revelation. Let me see, because I'm going to go around and ask everybody for, you know, for your answers, but I, I think... I think you can capture the, the, those answers, if they're true of who God is, in two general categories. The, the, the primary categories for these must fit in this. One, God must have the source of being within himself. 
God must have the source of being within himself. Okay? That includes wisdom. That includes um, life, the, the ability to create life. Uh, all, of, all of those attributes that if you have done any study of, of God in Scripture that, that come out of God, that those are revealed and captured in that God ha- must have the source of being within himself in order to be able to create and the other one is kind of out of that, but it's pointedly, I think, you know, for our benefit, that God must be greater than me, otherwise I'd be God, right? He's got to be more powerful than me, otherwise I would be God. So those two kind of primary categories, but we pull those fundamentally from general revelation first. Now through specific revelation in God's word, as he reveals more of himself, we, we, we learn the finer points of those. But even somebody who's in a tribe in, the, in Africa or in, in the Andes in, or, or in the, uh, the Amazon and completely cut off from, you know, from modern civilization, in a sense, and history can point to those two categories from general revelation. So, these, so I, I asked this question to kind of open up for today because this is ultimately where Jesus is going. This is important for us to, to note, because oftentimes in our culture, as we kind of become comfortable with this notion of God, we want to or we're tempted to take one or two attributes of God and say, well, this is what God must be like. They, you talk to somebody and they may pull something up and say, well, my God's not like that. Now, is God not like that because you don't like the idea of it and you're dictating those terms? Or is God not like that because he's not actually like that? He's not revealed himself in that way. It's something we have to check ourselves on because it's easy for us to slide and fashion a God in our own making. So it's important as, as we look at Scripture and particularly where we go this morning that we let God be God because that's exactly where Jesus goes with the, with the Jews. Okay, Follow me as we get into the Scripture here. I know it's been a couple of weeks, so just a, 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 um, a brief review. Jesus has just, uh, he's just healed a man on the Sabbath, and the Jews are upset with him. They're not upset because he's done a miracle. They're upset because he's broken the Sabbath law according to their standards, and he's healed a man on the Sabbath. But not only that, he said in verse 17 of chapter 5, he said, my father is working until and I myself are working. And verse 18, John, uh, John the apostle records the Jews were upset with him because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Now, Jesus goes on in the next few verses. He doesn't refute that. He clarifies it. He clarifies it. And he's argued that he is the divine son of God, that he's equal with God the Father in dignity and honor, but they're distinct in roles. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that God the Father, God the Son, equal in dignity and honor, and distinct in roles. And, and he, he, he articulates that in those verses. But upon what basis does he make that claim? He's, he's, that's, a, that's a phenomenal statement, what he says there in those verses. It's huge. But upon what basis? I mean, I can say a lot of things about myself, but you might just go, well, okay. On what basis? Right? You've got to have something that undergirds a huge claim of who you are. 
And so that's where Jesus is going. That's where we're going to go. Now let me pause here for a minute because like I said earlier, this hinges very well with where we've been the last couple weeks with, uh, with apostasy. Because this section of scripture, these few verses are helpful for the unbelieving doubter. For the unbeliever who says, did, did Jesus really say and do all the things that are here in the Gospels? Or are these just legends? Are these just stories that are made up by ancient superstitious people that really just didn't know any better? So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That doesn't just make it so. Here, here's where we can go to really pinpoint and, and dig deep into those fundamental questions. But it's also help, helpful for the believing doubter. For the believing doubter that says, can God really be trusted with my life? Can he really be trusted with the life of my children? Can he be really trusted with my family? I, is he really there in my darkest hour? Is his plan bigger than my plan? Those are huge questions. Those are, those are questions that come up when doubts arise, when, when there's the point of a crisis of faith, as Alan talked about the last couple of weeks. And so we come here and Jesus lays some rebar in the ground, digs a huge footer. Construction analogy, I know, that's my wheelhouse, so I'll just run with it. You know? Okay, he digs a huge footer here. All right, so it's worth our spending time and, and finding some good application. All right, so enough, enough preamble. Let's dive into it. Um, I'm going to go to verse 31 because verse 30, I think, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about next week um, in, in, the, uh, in the latter section of it. So, but Jesus, Jesus says in verse 31, as he begins to lay this foundation, he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, is Jesus all of a sudden saying, I'm equal with God the Father in dignity and honor and, and fundamentally glory? but we're distinct in roles. He's, he's kind of articulated this, and then he turns around and goes, but that's not really true. That, really, that wouldn't make sense. Is Jesus basically just, is he undercutting what he just said? No, no, he's not doing that. No, he's saying, my testimony is not true, so you say. Remember, he's talking to Jews who are upset with him because of what he's just said. Uh, I'll, I'll lean on, uh, on one commentator, uh, Hendrickson, on this, who put it like this. He said, imagine... Um, Imagine there's a there's a uh, imagine there's a political um, speaking tour basically, and a, and a group of Democrats have gathered and they're speaking, and all of a sudden the the primary Republican presidential nomination just happens to walk in, and they go, oh, Mr. So and So is here. Would you come up and give us a few words? Of course, everybody's kind of snickering, going, oh, this is going to be good. We're going to roast him, and he knows he knows these people don't really believe in him. They don't, they, don't, they don't support him. And so he gets up there. What is he going to say? He'll say, you know, I believe that I'm the best candidate that the nation has, that the nation could elect right now. But not so you say. But you don't believe that, basically. But you don't believe that. Jesus, in a sense, is doing the same thing. He's standing in with a group of people who are in stark opposition to him, and he's saying... He's saying, if I testify about myself, which is what I've just done, I know you don't believe me. So I'm going to go to something else to give grounds to it. To give grounds to it. 
And so Jesus in verse 32, where does he go? He says, there is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives me is true. Now we'll find as we move through, through here, this, he's going to God the Father. He's going to God the Father. But before he gets there, he takes a little, almost a, almost a detour. It's as if you were, were walking down a path, and that path is going to a wonderful wa- uh, waterfall. But there's a little watering hole off to the side. The watering hole is called John the Baptist. And so it warrants our pausing here and getting a, a little refreshment. Because Jesus says, he says, you've sent to John, and he's testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not for man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He, speaking of John the Baptist, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice with him for a while. So what is Jesus saying? He's not appealing to John the Baptist as the authority or or as the primary testimony, but he points to John. He he points to John. He pauses here, and, and he gives us some good encouragement and good instruction because Here's the way that God opens the eyes of people. It's through someone whose eyes are open to the gospel. The veil's lifted. They see Jesus in all his glory. They see him, and that in turn overflows into the testimony, that, that testimony to other people. We saw this with the woman at the well, how she turned around and she went and she told the people in the village. And we'll see this more as we move through John. Okay, but John the Baptist, he was uniquely and specifically given revelation about who, who the Christ would be. Remember at his baptism, or at Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes and, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John saw the, the, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the voice from heaven was heard, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the testimony that John has been saying is now coming true at a unique, specific point in history. And John is testifying of this. He's testifying, and people are coming to that testimony. But Jesus is saying, I'm not fundamentally resting upon this testimony. There's a greater testimony, but this testimony is important because it's going to represent the testimony of all those who will come afterwards who will give testimony to who I am. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? who came to Christ because someone sat down and explained the scriptures to him. This is how people come to faith in Christ. God doesn't just reach down and go, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. He opens the eyes through his word. And then we go and we share. We're conduits of a message. That's humbling. That's humbling for us. Notice, too, that John was a, he was a lamp and he was burning. It, it, it's, commentators agree here that at this point, John was probably already in prison if he hadn't been, in, been beheaded because of the past tense, that he was burning. That, and, and it's reminded us that we're, we're temporal carriers of an eternal message. Right? It's, it's not about us. It's about Christ. John. What did John say? I, he must increase, I must decrease. And notice what Jesus says also. He says that you, speaking of the Jews, he says, 
you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember, John was not the light, but he was pointing to the light. He was the lamp. He was the carrier of the light. He was the wick that burned for a season and then went out. If you're a Christian today, this is a picture of you as a, as a Christian. You're not a bright, shiny candlestick that walks around and kind of struts. Think of the candlestick from... Uh, yeah, you're thinking of it too, Beauty and the Beast. I saw that. I got two little girls. No, it just was the imagery that goes through my head. Okay? But it, it, it's not about the candlestick. It's about the light that the candlestick brings. John brought the light of Christ for a season. He was a temporal carrier of an eternal message. And then, boom, snuffed out. And this is us. What are you tasked with as a Christian? To be a carrier of the light. Don't forget that. It's so easy. I know it's so easy to go out tomorrow and be about, I'm, I'm working towards a promotion, or I've got this project or that project, or I've got, you know, I've got to make sure my kids do this, or you name it. And while these things are well and good, they're not the primary function of our life. They're not the primary function of our, of our life. The revelation that God's given to us is that we're to be carriers of a light. But that light is meant to attract people, right? Jesus says, or John, the apostle, writes of John the Baptist that you were attracted to his light. You were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. And that part is important because it's temporary. Because it's temporary. Beware of being attracted to the gospel, to being attracted to the church, and being attracted to Jesus for a while. And that doesn't mean once I get to be a believer for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I can just kind of coast. The reason that it's unsettling when we hear about high-profile Christian pastors and speakers and authors who apostatize is because we feel that they're secure. And yet what we see, at least now, Lord willing that they'll, they'll, there'll be repentance there. But what we see is they believed for a while. Jesus says, don't believe for a while. Believe unto salvation. Always be believing. So John the Baptist has a specific point of encouragement for us. And Jesus points to him, so I'm telling you this so that you'll be saved. So that you'll be believing unto salvation. And so we step away from, from the, the watering hole. We move on down the path. John the Apostle writes and says that the testimony which Jesus has is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. So Jesus is moving on. He's got, he's got somewhere he's going ultimately. And it's for, the, for, for God the Father. And he's, he's, he's saying God the Father testifies in two ways. And these two ways are really linked together. And I want to show that. One through the works and one through the word. First, the works. These are the works of Jesus. He says in verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. These are the works like what he's done previously, where he healed the sick man. He healed the lame man. He's getting ready in the next section 
the next miracle that occurs is he feeds the 5,000. Now, these are not primarily demonstrations of Jesus' uh, of Jesus power over natural boundaries, although those in of themselves give testimony to, to Jesus' power, but rather they're fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 35, where he said, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear. Or Psalm 107, 9, said that he feeds the hungry and he satisfies the thirsty. It was prophesied that the, old, that the Messiah, when he would come, would perform miracles. And Jesus is performing these miracles. So that's not lost on people. That's not lost on people. But they're not believing that he's the Messiah because what he's saying and what he's doing are in conflict with who they think the Messiah should be. See, the works of Jesus give credit to the words of Jesus. They're the seal. They're, one of the, they're the seal that the Father has sent him. And that should give us comfort just practically that Jesus was not primarily about the works that the works were giving testimony to himself that in our uh, that in that when we're going through suffering that God's greatest desire for us in that moment is not necessarily being freed from earthly suffering but that we would come to know him more deeply more personally know more of his character, not just in a knowledge, like we'd read it in a book, but that we would experience it. And that very, that very well may be through suffering. So the works give credit to Jesus, to the words of Jesus, and to who he is. But then also the word. He says in verse 37, the Father who sent me has testified of me. Now notice this. What's a, te te a testimony? You think in a court of law, someone who testifies, they get up on the stand, you see them and you hear them. They give a testimony. They vouch for someone else, basically. So Jesus is saying, the Father has testified of me. Now watch this. Watch what he says. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now this is very ironic. If you think about this, because who's standing in front of them? Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Right? That, that's Hebrews 1. He's, uh, he, he's the exact representation of, the nat uh, of his nature. John 14, 2, uh, 24 says that he's the voice of the Father. What the Father says, Jesus says. So the God himself is standing before them. And he's saying, you've not seen his form and you've not heard his voice. They're blind and they're deaf to who Jesus was. But they're blind and they're deaf to who the Father said the Messiah was going to be. Who the Christ was going to be. He says, you've never seen, never heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. Isn't that interesting? Jesus appeals to himself really as, as the testimony that God has said. 
But that's from the Old Testament scriptures because look at what he says next. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. Jesus is saying, if you had the word of God abiding in you, then you would see God has testified of me from the Old Testament. All over the place. Do you see there just kind of as a footnote? What does Jesus believe about the, the, the authority of the Old Testament? That it's the divine testimony of God. Not, not, the, not the testimony of men, although it was penned by the hand of men. He's saying this is the divine revelation of God. He's speaking of the Old Testament. So there's an abiding of the word which brings forth faith and light, heat, and its love for others. But we're cautioned about a, a peddling, in a sense. That was the best term I could come up with, borrowing it from Paul. There, there's a peddling of that same word with only further veils, drives us into darkness, and renders us cold. That's what he tells the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures, not that you have searched them, but that you are searching them. They know their Old Testaments. They have knowledge of them. They've put, as, as, as Jesus says later at the, towards the end of the chapter, which we'll get into next week, you put your hope in Moses, in, in the law. You put your hope in what Moses wrote, but it's Moses who testified of me. Jesus says, God the Father has testified of me through his revelation in the Old Testament. Now, how is that the case? I want to just take you through some of these. What Jesus is from the Old Testament. Jesus is the Adam who doesn't fail when he's tempted. Genesis 3. He ushers in the new humanity. He's the one who rescues us from the flood of God's Judgment, Genesis 4. He is our substitute sacrifice on the altar, Genesis 22. Uh, Genesis 22. He's the king who has mercy on his rebellious brothers, Genesis 45. He's the final Passover lamb where the angel of death sees his blood on the doorpost of our hearts and passes over us in mercy, Exodus 12. He's the bread of heaven which satisfies our longing souls, Exodus 16. He's the water of life which springs forth from the rock of suffering when it's struck by the heart of faith, Exodus 17. He's the one who doesn't just bring us the law of God, but he writes it upon our hearts, Exodus 19. He's the one who melts down our idols and intercedes for us in the presence of God the Father, Genesis 32. He's the offering which satisfies the justice of God, Leviticus 1. He's the atonement offering which bears our guilt on the cross and casts our sin outside the camp, not just into the woods, but as far as the east is from the west, Leviticus 16. He's the commander who will defeat all the enemies of God because his trust in the Lord will never fail, book of Joshua. He's the great judge who has no weaknesses and cannot be killed for he's already defeated death, Judges 16. He's the kinsman who lovingly redeems us, Ruth 4. He's the king who will govern us with mercy and grace and never abuse us, 1 Samuel 8. 
He's the one who defeats the giant of sin when we're cowering in fear. 1 Samuel 17. He's the king who rules in infinite wisdom and he never turns from God. 1 Kings 11. The one who restores our fellowship with God when it's been destroyed by sin. Ezra 3. The one who unwaveringly trusts God when everything else is stripped from him. Book of Job. He's the shepherd who tenderly cares for us. Psalm 23. He's the wi- he is wisdom for he only speaks and does what the Father tells him. Book of Proverbs. He's the lover who passionately pursues us. When we look at ourselves and we say, I'm common. I'm only common. And he says, and I love you. Song of Solomon. He's the servant who suffers for our transgression and takes the punishment for our well-being. Isaiah 53. He's the one who intimately introduces us to the Father through the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. He's the one who breathes life into the dry bones of our soul. Ezekiel 37. He's the one who unites all ethnicities and does away with racial prejudice because mercy and grace are his scepter and crown. Daniel 7. He's the husband who never leaves us even when we adulterate him. Book of Hosea. The one who will right every injustice. Book of Obadiah. He's the better prophet who joyfully he's the better prophet who joyfully brings us the news of repentance and rejoices rather than grumbles when we obey. Book of Jonah. He's the one who pleads our case on his behalf, not on our own goodness, but on his behalf, and he brings us out into the light of God's grace that we may see his righteousness. Micah 7. He's the one in his just wrath against sin, remembers mercy, and declares righteousness to those who live by faith. Book of Habakkuk. He's the coming king who speaks peace to all nations, Zechariah 9. And he's the one who rises with healing in his wings, Malachi 4. And many, many, many more. You see, Jesus is the divine son of God because God has revealed him to be so. He's the hero we're looking for. He's the salvation we need. And he's the hope we long for. Not within ourselves, but without from outside ourselves. And many might look back on the, uh, on the Bible and say, well, we're just reading edited history. We're just reading redacted history. And that's a good question. Worth digging into that I don't have time to go into. But you still have to answer <coughs> with confidence based on historical record who Jesus was. That either, <coughs> either the gospel is the most elaborate con in the history of humanity, which by the, hey, he, by the way has huge moral implications that are earth-shattering for how we live today, or it's the real deal. Or it's the real deal. That Christ points back to the Old Testament. He's not looking back on this and saying, well, this fits me pretty well. John John and the apostles aren't looking back and going, I think we can kind of make this work. Do you realize that if you took the apostles in modern day, they might look something like this. A, a, A fiery religious extremist, a professional extortionist who absolutely loves capitalism, a traitorous thief, a few kind of tender-hearted millennials, 
and some good old country boys from the hill. Now, you put those guys in a room, and you tell them, you've got to figure out how to change the world. And by the way, your, your method's ultimately going to cost you your wealth and your life. I will guarantee you, you don't have many of them left after a couple hours. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus did. And, and nobody disputes that. That when Christ came, he changed the course of history. And it's recorded here. By these ragtag bunch of guys that went out and lost their lives because they saw it. And it's not like they were looking back and going, I think we can kind of make this thing work. They said, no, this guy's really who God said he was going to be. And Jesus appeals to that. He said, the Father has testified of me from the Old Testament. And now back to the Jews and then on to our application. He says, and yet you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I think if we're really honest, when we don't come to God, it's because we don't want to. It, it's because we might fear what it might require. It, that, that we, we fear that these, some of these idols that we love to hold on to, we might have to let go of them. And we don't trust that we can. And we're going to get more into this because Jesus immediately uh, next points to glory. He says, I don't receive glory from men. And there's a unique kind of connection between glory and love of God that I don't have time to get into. We'll get into that next week. Um, so there's your teaser kind of for next week. <coughs> Excuse me. But in the last few minutes, let me give some application. One, how do you read your Bible? Do you, do you only go to the New Testament because it's comfortable? And you stay away from strange books in the Old Testament that you really can't pronounce because you're like, I really don't know what to do with these. That's okay. That, that's okay. Get a good study Bible. Get a good study Bible. Read through the study section at the beginning. That's fantastic. I'll tell you, when I read through the Bible, that's the first place I go. When I land on a new book, I go to that section because there's some of those books that I'm like, I don't need to know more about this. And I've been amazed at what the Lord's revealed about himself through tiny books of the Bible that really I'd hardly ever darken the pages of. But read the Bible and read it with that larger redemptive history lens that Jesus is echoed and even screamed in every story and on every page. But specifically, how do you read it with your heart? Do, do you walk away from the Bible feeling motivated to moral action? And, and do you walk away feeling better about yourself? That's a good sign that you're putting your hope in the law. That you're like the Pharisees who are putting their hope in Moses and not actually in Christ? Or do you come away from it moved to worship some aspect of God through the cross and then motivated to follow Him in faith? I say that's what Jesus is desiring. He's desiring that you see Him and that you see the Father through the lens of the Son and that you worship. And that that moves you to follow Him in faith. So how do you read your Bible? Secondly, where do you go in seasons of doubt and despair? 
I'll tell you, my, my, my temptation is to run to hobbies, run to entertainment, go find a good Netflix film, go find a good movie that's coming out, and just desensitize myself. Sometimes the last place your pastor wants to go is to the Word. I'll admit that. But I read this, and Jesus says, when you doubt, you go to the Word. You, you be like Moses who takes the staff and he strikes the rock. He didn't just strike it once. Strike it multiple times until the water flows. Come to, the, come to the Word. Say, Lord, I need you. I have doubts. I have questions. I'm struggling. Are you there? Remind me who you are. Remind me who Jesus is so I can walk in faith. We need to be reminded that, that God keeps His promises and that He will not leave us even if it costs us our life or our reputation. Two others. And this, this, well, this kind of is a sub to the first one. Go to the Word, but go to it daily. Even if you're not in a time of faith crisis, go to it daily. As I was leaving the house this morning, <laughs> I was walking out, a guy in the van started backing up, and the kids are in the van, and I stopped. And on my front step, I don't have a porch, so it gets full sun. And on my front step are two potted plants that my parents gave me. And uh, I have to water them at least every other day. I try and water them every day, but at least every other day. And I, and I remembered, I looked at them, and I saw that they were wilting. And, and I was like, oh, no, I didn't water them yesterday. I got to water them today. So I hop out, you know, go up there, turn the hose on, you know, hose them down. I get back in, and the girls are like, well, what are you doing? I said, I got to water those plants. If I don't, they die. And all of a sudden, bing, it clicked. And I was like, those plants are like me. I'm not planted in the ground of the good earth of God's new creation that he's promised yet where he'll water me. I'm in a pot. I'm in a pot of this earth. And I've got to go to his word. I've got to go to him in prayer daily. Say, Lord, water me lest I perish, <coughs> lest I die. So I took that and explained it to my six-year-old and my four-year-old and it was great, and they started talking about bugs and stuff, you know. So, <laughs> but <laughs> it's wonderful trying to teach the gospel to your children. It's a very humbling experience. <laughs> um, but go to the Word daily for nourishment. If plants that are in pots need water, you and I need the living water. And then lastly, what are you doing to continue the testimony? This is, this is, Jesus points back to a testimony that's been written and recorded that's happened in history. God is moving throughout history. Christ comes on the scene. Gospel happens. Jesus goes to the cross. Later, John the Apostle writes of that, which then becomes testimony. Do, do you see this thread that God is doing? In all of history, when it comes to its culmination, we'll, we'll have this thread and have this story of God glorifying himself through the people that, that he is saving. So if you know Christ and you know Jesus, what are you doing to continue that testimony? Not for your own sake, but for the glory of God, that God the Son and God the Father would be exalted in your life. Maybe that's through a, a specific intentional ministry like Miracle Hill. I didn't have this in my notes this morning, but as um, Natalie was talking, I was like, you know, this is 
this is this is pointed. No. Do you have to? No. But if you, if the Lord's laying on your heart, I want to be intentional. I'll have the opportunity maybe to do things organically with a neighbor or with, or maybe you are, and you're saying, I want to be more intentional. It's th- these ex- uh, organizations exist so that that can happen. Or, or maybe it's just as simple as saying, you know, the Lord's laid on my heart that I need to reach out to this coworker. I need to reach out to this neighbor in a tangible way so that they might see the gospel and that they might hear the gospel. What are you doing to continue that testimony? Remember John writes at the end of his gospel, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The flame that you carry is that same testimony. That Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. We, we thank you that you, have s- you saw fit in your infinite wisdom to reveal your Son to us. Lord, may we let you be God, <laughs> as, as crazy as that sounds. It's like an ant saying to a person, let you be human. But Father, may we, may we let you be God in our hearts. That we would look at your word and say, Father, reveal yourself to me. Show me, as Moses said, show me your glory. And may we stand in awe and wonder at what you show us. May we see your son testified about throughout all of your word. May it move us to worship daily. May it comfort us and give us spiritual rebar in seasons of doubt when our earth is shaken or when, our, when, our, when the foundation of our life is shaken. May we cling to the cross. Father, may it move us to be living testimonies that burn for a season and attract people to the gospel to your sons not for our sake but for yours that you would receive the glory and honor father we thank you and we praise you it's in jesus name that i pray amen may the lord bless you and keep